Hello and welcome to episode nine of Yes A BS. We are powering through season two here, Jones. Mm. I don't know how you feel about these facts, but I, I think I'm on fire at the minute. You, you've been doing very well. You've come out with some good ones, I've got to say. I'm pretty sure I won last time. I, I'll have to go back and check, but I've got a memory like a, 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 a fish save. I was trying to say fish yeah, or save. A fish? A fish. I've got a memory like a fish. <laughs> So I have to go back and check if I actually won last time. I can't remember. I can't remember what I did yesterday. I feel I'm, I'm pulling this season round though. I'm. I think I'm going to come onto a win. I'm going to bury the memories of the Christmas special. The Christmas defeat. special. Yeah. I mean, you're still recovering from that. I, I saw, <laughs> yeah. I saw a slight sort of twitch on your eye when you said Christmas special. If people could see me now, I'm wrapped in a dressing gown. <laughs> Hot cup of cocoa. I still get the shakes, you know. He's the shell of a man. The Christmas special really wiped them out. I was missing for weeks, actually, wasn't there, Paul? If you oh, remember. it was bliss. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm back now, everybody. And I say on that note, I'm just going to launch straight into let's this. Let's go, let's go. For this fact, what's, what's that do we hear in the distance? Oh, it's, God. Whoop, whoop, it's the sound of death. Polis is in the Greek city-states, which were known as Polis. Oh, hang on. I, I, <laughs> give me a minute to recover from this. <laughs> oh, God. I, I, I kind of feel like I should go and have a shower. <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. Paul, you've just thought of that joke in the shower last night. No, I'm thinking this might be the end of my career. <laughs> <laughs> There's been so many potential career-ending moments True. for you on this True. podcast. So you're thinking, I might have just thought of that last night and chuckled and thought, I'm going to build a lie around the sound of the polis, the Greek city-states. Yeah, I, I have literally no idea where you go. I'm trying to now think how you're going to get like hip-hop into <laughs> a fact about ancient Greece. <laughs> That's where it ends. Right, okay. That's where the hip-hop references end. So that was just a completely unrelated pun. A completely unrelated pun. I wanted to do a fact about Greek city-states. So it's not too late to blanket from my mind. <laughs> it's not. Right. Okay. It's not too late to edit that whole joke out. <laughs> Let's forget this ever happened <laughs> and start again. I'm totally not editing that out. <laughs> so, I was chuckling away to myself. About anyway, right. so how many of the ancient Greek city-states do you know? Um, Probably not that many. Ooh, go on, name uh, Sparta, mm-hmm. Athens, Yep. Um, the one up the top. Just a bit of background. There were roughly a thousand different polis or city-states in ancient a Greece. A thousand? And yep. I could name two? <laughs> <laughs> Are you joking? I'm going to look like the densest person. <laughs> there was a thousand? Yes. And not all at the same time, over oh. roughly. I don't know how how long the period over it was, there was right. but there was about a thousand roughly they, they could range from anywhere from very small towns to right. big cities like Athens, Sparta just for clarity, Apollos is somewhere that sort of has its own jurisdiction. and Yes, it literally means body of citizens in yeah. Greek. So it's the kind of the defining factors of Apollos is they're autonomous. So they're independent right. groups of people. Right. So okay. it could be from village to city. Right. Which is right. why there was a thousand. There weren't a thousand Athens sized cities. Yes, that's Greece through me slightly. I don't think there's that in Greece today. No, I doubt it. And I but could name two of them. The third one you might have been thinking of in the north. Mm-hmm. is Thebes. Right. Now, there's been evidence of settlement around Thebes from about 1600 BC on, mm-hmm. but it didn't really start to gain prominence till about 3rd, 4th century BC when they started to come into contact with Athens. Right. Bit of a rivalry going on there. But as you know, a lot of the Greek city-states had elections. 
Yes. Fa- fathers of modern Western democracy. Indeed. Now, most of the people who could vote in these elections were property-owning citizens. Mm-hmm. And in Thebes, when there was an election coming, they had a kind of a special area in the public square, the Agora. Yes. So what the candidates would do, they'd set up their own wooden board. This is Jeff's candid- candidacy board. But obviously, he wasn't called right. Jeff. Yeah. It was a Greek name. Jeffos. Jeffos. <laughs> yeah, here is Jeffos's candidacy. Right. right here. Now, what the male voting citizens could do, they could attach um, I follow Jeffos and they would nail a piece of parchment to his section. Say he's got my support right. before this election. Right. They could also post comments about that person. Right. Now, there was a rule. They couldn't be anonymous. So in right. many ways, they're better than modern day social media. Yeah, true. You couldn't hide behind. They weren't bot accounts, these guys. Right, yes. You had to sign off um, who you were and your job description, what you did in Thebes. Right. You couldn't just... Because then you might get the candidate just writing loads of fake reviews for himself. Yes. But you could go up to it and say, well, Jeff, he was a great guy. He helped me out with X, Y and Z last month. Yeah. Here's what he did for me. My name's Bob. Right. Again, so it's that... almost like a sort of testimonial. Yes. So it was right. like a testimonial. And it was kind of because you could post on the board, anyone could go up to this any time and have a read. And there was no need for the candidate to have an open forum and speak to the people as often. So you could right. just, hey, go check out my social media. Right. OK. Fo- follow me on the board in the Agora. You're going to love what's up there. I've okay. got some great things coming for you next week. So it's almost like it's a Facebook page. Yes. It's Facebook open to page. the public. You can comment on it. People can read the other comments. Yes. And mm. the candidates could post policies that they were planning to do in the coming, however long the candidacy was. I think right. Four or five years, maybe, right. they were rulers of Thebes. OK. And there you have it. Right. The inventors of social media in the polis of Thebes. OK. I like this. Mm. Um, this is a good fact. Did, now, was this only in Thebes? Yes. There's no record of this kind of board posting done in any other of the Greek city-states. But of right. course, they might have done it. It's just Thebes recorded that they did this. That they did it. Right. Okay. Because it seems like such a good idea. That mm. uh, we'll probably have caught on elsewhere. You'd imagine it would be kind of rampant for corruption as well because there's nothing to stop you going around paying people right yeah i can kind of see how it would yeah you could buy someone's testimonial mm. in that respect so it wasn't foolproof mm. you could probably still even write them yourself and just put a fake name on them or you could do but then i that would bring the person to come and say hey i didn't write that and then uh, yeah or someone would go there's no one who lives around here called john pete pete <laughs> called john pete <laughs> again the i the ancient Greek names are a bit off. This does sound very plausible. And also you told it very eloquently that, that you can tell you have a... You're, you're really invested in this. Um, but that could also be because you've made it up and you think it's a good story. Mm. And my gut saying that I think it's probably true. The only kind of sticking point that I've got is that it's only recorded in this one place because it seems like such a sensible kind of forward thinking thing to do. Mm. Um, well, not all the Greek city-states were democratic. There were some tyrannies out mm. there as well. People just think ancient Greeks, oh, everywhere. They were all the same. Yeah, they're all the yeah. same. But they were very different across all the different city-states. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's all sorts of words in ancient Greece for that kind of disparage other parts of ancient Greece. Mm. Everyone thinks Athens was sort of what all of Greece was like. But And this is just my thought here. I'd imagine the other big cities wouldn't want to adopt this because that's what Thebes does. Yeah. So it's like, well, we're not going to carry on their stupid practices because yeah. a bunch of joggers live in Thebes. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of sort of 
snootiness and mm. yeah okay um i think actually thebes they allied with xerxes when he invaded they originally said oh we're going to help you out the battle of thermopylae and then turned against the other greeks i think oh really i think so maybe that's did the they actively we... help the persians or did they just sort of remain neutral uh, i don't know that would be pretty shady it would be which is why i imagine they wouldn't like to adopt theban practices yeah Ooh, this is tricky I, my gut is still saying that i think this is true you could have made it up but it's almost too clever for you to admit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if that's a compliment. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. I'm just going to go with my gut. I'm, I'm going to say, yes, this is true. Final answer? Yeah. That is all a lie. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely hook, line and sinker. Yep. You've made all that up. Yep. That was such a good fact. Oh, absolutely played. Thebes is obviously a Greek city state. Yeah. So that obviously existed. That Come seemed up. so realistic. Mm. Oh, damn you. I might actually adopt that for my own social media. Rather than my <laughs> four followers on Twitter, I might just start nailing things to the side of the house. Yeah. Well, see how that goes. Did you get the idea from everyone nailing messages to your front door telling you to move out? (laughs) (laughs) How dark is that? Can you imagine if people started doing that? Anthony gets an eviction notice and then the day after comes up with this fact. (laughs) That was at the beginning when I said I did. I thought of that stupid joke in the shower last night. You literally did. Yeah. And then you wrote this fact about it. Yeah. It might, have, <sighs> it might have even been, because I think you posted a Greek city-state fact about ostracism, ostracism. on Haggard Hawks yeah. the other day. And I was like, ah. Oh, I've, I've inspired you to come up with a fact that I've just lost. And I was like, hey, Greek city-states. I doubt he knows anything else about Greek city-states. I don't. Oh, that's so <laughs> annoying. Wow. Oh, well played. Oh, thank you very much, Paul. I'll, I'll graciously give you that point because that was a brilliant <laughs> fact, even though it was all BS. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Paul. Now, let's see what you've got coming up. Already on the back foot. I'm not happy about this. But that was a good fact. That's a good fact. So I'm going to come back swinging with, you know how much I love my literature Shakespeare kind of facts? Oh. And you know how much I love my classical music facts? I'm going to tell you about the composer who left his skull to the RSC because he wanted to play Yorick mm, in Hamlet. Okay. Okay, so before we start, you know the scene in Hamlet where... Alas, poor Yorick. Yeah. He wanted to play that character, which is um, obviously <laughs> doesn't have a lot of lines. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> but he wasn't an actor; he was a composer. So um, yeah, there wasn't much chance of him actually actually performing on stage. So uh, this is a composer called Tchaikovsky. Not the Tchaikovsky. I can see how excited you're getting there. That's uh, Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky, uh, the Russian composer of Swan Lake and all the rest of it. This is Andrei Tchaikovsky who um, was a Polish composer. He was born in uh, Warsaw in 1935. He actually escaped the Warsaw Ghetto in 1942. Um, and then after the war, studied in Paris and began performing um, as a musician in the 1950s, kind of in his late teens, early 20s. He became very well known as a performer and a composer, and he wrote an opera based on The Merchant of Venice, which we think kind of sparked this or was sparked by a love of uh, Shakespeare but he died very young he died in 1982 when he was only 46 he must have really wanted that Yorick part (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so he left his body to medical research and he left his skull in his will to the RSC, Royal Shakespeare Company. Interesting. Okay. Now, th- this was in um, 1982, as I say, when he died. That was when he, he left his skull. But the skull wasn't used, um, actually, on stage until 2008. Uh, we don't know whether it was... <laughs> was it just in a drawer somewhere? <laughs> I don't know where they kept it. Um, yeah, poor old uh, Andre. No, um, yeah, we don't, I don't know whether it was maybe... I mean, I was just reading into this, but it might be because actors are quite suspicious. The idea of using an actual real skull mm. is maybe a bit bizarre. I don't um, know if that just extends to actors. I think if anyone was given a real skull, <laughs> they, might, they might be... Yeah, uh, I don't think I'd maybe want to touch uh, a real human skull. Yeah, it's not... It's yeah. not a thing you really creepy. want to promote. Yeah. But so um, it's usually anatomical models that I used as uh, Yorick's skull in um, performances of Hamlet. But finally in 2008, um, the skull was actually used. It actually did used to be used in rehearsals, but never actually used in the performance. So maybe there was a sort of, um, you know, we can use it, but we don't We don't want to take a human skull <laughs> in front of the crowd kind of thing. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it kind of got used in the background, but then never actually used on stage until 2008 when David Tennant used it in his in his uh, production of Hamlet, um, which was the one that was filmed for the BBC a few years ago. I think I've seen bits of that. Yeah. So you have seen this man's skull. The one I have seen is actually the Mel Gibson version. <laughs> That's the only one I've seen the full version of Hamlet. Incidentally. Actually, I, I think... I don't think I've ever seen that one. It was quite good. He does an all right job, I think. Really? Yeah. So, yeah, David Tennant used it at a performance in Stratford. But the problem is that this became a really big story in the press that he was using a real human skull. So when this performance transferred to the West End, they stopped using it because they thought it's going to become too... Uh, like it's going to set people off. Yeah. Is it right? I'm going to. We need to get more skulls. <laughs> yes. Murder rate shoots up. Yeah, they thought it would be too distracting for the audience, and there'd be people who'd maybe be a bit creeped out by it. Mm. So they said, "We're not going to use it when it moves to the West End." Actually, they did keep using it in the West End, but they just told everyone that they didn't. Mm. Um, so he did actually kind of finally get to play Yorick in the West End. Hey. Um, yes, lots of people didn't like the idea of it, but people who've been involved in it have said that it's sort of. It's a whole part of that scene is about the kind of memento mori kind of thing. It's mm. a sort of reminder of the end of things. So it, it's, a, it's a sort of a way of bringing an extra edge to that scene. But uh, yeah, he finally did actually get to play Yorick. That does work, actually. With using a real skull, it, I think it hits home more. Yeah. Like, and and the... it's nice for Andre. Andre uh, gets what he wants. It's maybe <laughs> 30 odd years too late. Uh, you might have already gone up with this, but did he say why he wanted to be the skull? Was it just kind of... I don't know. I'm guessing from the fact that he wrote an opera based on The Merchant of Venice that he was probably a Shakespeare fan. Mm. Um, he wrote also a lot of other uh, bits and pieces. I think he might actually have written some musical settings of some of Shakespeare's sonnets. Mm. So I'm guessing he was maybe just a a big Shakespeare fan mm. um, and because he knew he was never going to be an actor he thought well I'll play this part I know you're a massive Shakespeare fan as well Paul. yeah is this something you would consider um, no I don't think so I don't I, yeah I want to be stuffed and put in your house <laughs> <laughs> intact just to annoy you I don't know how to respond to that one <laughs> <laughs> so mm-hmm. you've really gone to town on the background facts of this, mm-hmm. but I imagine David Tennant using a real skull, even I 
should have heard of that. And I never read the news or anything. <laughs> so how would you hear about it? Do you know David Tennant? I hear about things like this. I hear right. crazy news stories. Right. When was it? 2008? 2008. The production started in 2008. I think it was filmed for the BBC like 2010 or something like that. No, this might explain it because I wasn't in the country at that time. Oh, is this when you were living in Japan? You no, know, I was just on the run from the law at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I just... I. We don't, talk, we don't talk about 2008 to 2011. <laughs> this is the three years you were working as David Tennant's agent. <laughs> <laughs> it's the three years I impersonated David Tennant. <laughs> In <and> Japan. I... <laughs> there were some good times, good times. But, um, you've, okay, there's a lot of detail around this. Mm-hmm. So my first gut instinct is to say this is true. Mm-hmm. But, again, I've never heard of this before. Mm-hmm. Has this happened? Has anyone else doing it to skull? Like this, or is, or is this Andre Fella the only one? I genuinely think he's probably the first person to have done this. It's quite a nice idea, I think. Hmm. Um, but no, this is that's, uh, I think that's it's another really part that makes us suspicious because it is a nice idea and it does give that remember you're going to die impact mm-hmm. a bit more meaning. So, have you just thought along those lines and <laughs> built a fact around it? I really don't know what to think on this game anymore. Mm. I never know. I'm trying to read your face. I, I've been practicing my poker face between seasons. Oh, it's, I haven't it's, really. <laughs> just <laughs> spend hours sat in front of the mirror, just not looking. Well, you lie to me so often, anyway, Paul. Outside of this <laughs> like, podcast, like when I tell you that I like you. <laughs> but anyway, back to the facts. Yeah. Right. I'm just going to throw out there. I'm going to say there's enough in this to be true. Okay. I'm going to say true. Okay. Final answer. Yes. That entire fact was true. Oh, well done. I knew it. I thought I, I thought you might kind of go along the ploy of like, he likes classical music, he likes Shakespeare, he's deliberately blended them both That's together. That's kind of where I thought it was going to go. Yeah, but no, it's but true. But I don't know, it had like a, a very believable ring to it. Yeah. So I, was... I've, I literally never heard of this guy before. Andre Tchaikovsky. Mm. No relation. <laughs> <laughs> was he Tchaikovsky's younger brother who was also a wrestler? Andre, Andre the Giant. I am two for two on the we jokes. We are hemorrhaging. <laughs> two for two on the jokes today. Somebody laughed at that, maybe. He wasn't in this room. <laughs> okay, Paul, it's now 2 0 to me. No. I'm absolutely storming. I've got, two. A, I got a bad feeling about this. I think yeah. this is, could be a 6 0. But don't worry. You might be able to pull this back mm-hmm. because I've done it again and I've chosen a science fact. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Okay. Now, regular listeners may know, I every time I try to choose a science fact, it usually starts poorly mm-hmm. and gets worse from there. Yeah. I, so. Yeah. And we drop a couple of IQ points each along the way. <laughs> so I've done a bit of prep work on this one. It'll It'll make no difference. <laughs> I've used NASA as a source. Oh, right. Okay. So I'm going to try and explain this fact. Well, this will be good. A bit of a background first, anyway. So obviously, mentioned NASA there. I'm heading into the world of astronomy. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about the planet Mercury today. Okay. One of my favourites. <laughs> it's not, not a subject I have many... What's your favourite planet, Paul? I've never thought about it. I quite like Earth. <laughs> it's got its appeal, I suppose. Why but, Mercury. Uh, uh, just because it's lots of interesting backup facts before I get to my main fact today. That's why. 
Oh, right, okay. Is this like your lobster fact? <laughs> the facts just keep coming. <laughs> they do. I had about four or five right there. That's, this is very similar. Okay. So we're building little facts up to the big main Mercury fact. Right. Mercury is <clears throat> closest to the sun. Yes. Is that one of your facts? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I went on primary school children's website. Fact number one, Mercury <laughs> is very hot. <laughs> but did you know Mercury isn't the hottest planet in the solar system? I did know that. I'm glad I didn't use that as my main yeah. fact. <laughs> I think it's uh, Venus. It is Venus. Uh, I, just to give you some idea of the temperature, the hottest Mercury usually gets during the day is about 430 degrees centigrade, which is 800 degrees Fahrenheit for our American listeners. That's about as hot as it was on that beach in Spain last year. <laughs> <laughs> we'll not talk about how covered up I had to be. <laughs> I burn, burn very easily, but... Venus can get even hotter, up to 465 degrees Celsius. So, oh, so yeah. it's, it's, they're close, but yeah. it's a 35 degree difference. Now, I, I know that as a sort of bit of pub quiz trivia, but I don't know why Venus is hotter. It's because Venus has a very thick atmosphere that retains heat, whereas Mercury barely has any atmosphere at all. Right. So heat escapes very quickly. Oh, right, so when okay. the side that's not facing the sun can actually get down to minus 170 degrees on Mercury. Centigrade? Yes. Good grief. So it's because there's no atmosphere at all. It's basically bacon hot mm-hmm. or ice cold. Mm. A bit like this room we're recording in. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's right now we're on the, the baking hot level. <laughs> yeah. If you could see our glistening sweat. <laughs> so, that's, no, let's, let's, <laughs> that'll let's, get edited. That'll definitely get edited. Or will it? <laughs> what a lovely image we're creating. Mm. So some other bonus facts you might know about Mercury. Mm. Uh, do you know how long a year is in Mercury? Don't need to say a year. No, like, I think I might know this as a fact. Mm. Is it 88 days? It is. I don't know why, but I've always remembered that. It but it whooshes around the Yeah, sun, that's pretty quick. Lightning fast speed. But one day on Mercury, do you know how long that is? A day is the planet revolving. Yes, one rotation of the planet. Oh, I'm going to guess that it's something ridiculous like 100 years or something. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. It's <laughs> it's 176 Earth days it takes. Ah, one. right, okay. So that cold side, if you're on that side, eh? Yeah, you're in for a long <laughs> You're one. on a long wait. Yeah. Or you could just go to the other side of the planet. Oh, but you wouldn't be on, you wouldn't live on Mercury anyway. <laughs> yes, I'm, you, I, you can <laughs> just go to the other side of the planet. <laughs> Is that your solution? You see, science facts get worse. Right. They just keep getting worse. Uh, my third bonus fact is I'm mm-hmm. building up to the, the big boys. So these, these, I'm not voting on these. You're not voting I, on these. I've these are got all... both of these right. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm sitting like a pop quiz. <laughs> You've already lost. If This is why I Do thought... Do I get any points for these? No. Oh. Uh, Mercury has just 38% of the gravity of Earth. Right. So you'd be bouncing around on there, having a good time. Mm. Um... <laughs> having a good time in 400 degree heat. <laughs> well, as good a time as you can. <laughs> Maybe it's not a great holiday destination. No, but, you, say that. but the bouncing around is a plus. Mm. But my main fact. Right, I'm braced. This is, I'm going to put a drum roll mm-hmm. in here. Did you know Mercury is actually shrinking? Oh, no. Ah. Right, okay. <laughs> the relief. A small, a small sigh of relief that <laughs> you don't know this fact. Right. Basically, it's shrinking because, like Earth, uh, Mercury has a molten iron core, but the core of Mercury has been cooling 
at a much faster rate than Earth's core. Right. And this cooling is causing the tectonic plate. It just has one giant tectonic plate, not like a... Really? Yeah, it's just one enormous plate. I wouldn't have thought that was possible. Well, this is where I don't have any sort of astronomy knowledge to counteract or back that up. But essentially, because Mercury's core is cooling, it's contracting this one giant plate of Mercury and it starts to crack and it pushes in on itself... And when one part of the crack hits the other, the pressure pushes one of those cracks up to create a small mountain. Yeah. And the other part gets crushed under. Uh, no, I'm going to use my uh, A-level geography again. <laughs> God, this is like... <laughs> I believe that's called subduction. Ooh, look at this. <sighs> Somebody earned that D. Uh, if it isn't called subdu- subduction, <laughs> I now look like an idiot. Well, that makes two of us. <laughs> So basically, NASA sent a probe. There's only actually been two probes ever sent to Mercury as well. Oh. They sent the first one in the 1970s called Mm -hmm. Mariner 10. And they were the first probe that picked up these various mountain ranges that were kind of being created. Right. Off the back of this cooling. Right, okay. But they didn't confirm this until the second probe was sent in 2004, which was called the Messenger Probe. Right. They had, they got a much better mapping in yeah. the early 2000s. And they're right, we've confirmed it. These mountain ranges are getting bigger. And we can now see Mercury's diameter has gotten about four kilometers smaller. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't know over what period of time it shrunk. Yeah. Obviously, if it was if it shrank by four kilometers over 40 years, I'd yeah. imagine it wouldn't, Mercury would just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how it works? <laughs> it's shrinking four kilometers every 30 years. <laughs> Mercury's disappeared. Because <laughs> it's not that big to begin with, is it? It's not, actually. It's only about 4,000 kilometre diameter. But there you go. Is right. Mercury shrinking? Paul? Okay. Now, again, this does sound plausible. So, the core is molten iron, mm-hmm. and that's cooling. Mm-hmm. And as it's cooling, what's it doing to the plate? It's pulling the plate inwards. It's it's pulling the plate inwards, which is causing cracks, which cause those cracks to then grind up against each other and create small well these mountain ranges okay right so i'm like is it kind of like you inflate a balloon Mm -hmm. and then you paint on the balloon Mm -hmm. and then when the air starts to deflate from the balloon the paint cracks is it like that might be a good analogy but again, I don't have the scientific knowledge to confirm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say yes. Right. That's exactly okay. what happens. Right. Y- yeah. <clears throat> again, now you see, this This does sound very plausible. And also, I do, I, if this isn't true, you, I don't think you could be able to make it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know so little <laughs> about science. You just got to insult me on every fact. You're not, you're not intelligent enough to make these facts up. Yeah, that's why I picked you to do this podcast. <laughs> no, um, yeah. It, it see the thing is because my science knowledge isn't robust enough. I can't really analyze this. So it kind of to a layman like me, it kind of sounds like that is completely true. Mm. Like that process. Makes perfect sense. This almost. is the only reason I choose science because we're on an ignorant, yes, we're ignorant on an, equal footing. We're on an even keel. Um, I, I'm looking at kind of angles that I can come in on this to see maybe you would have made it up. Like, does Mercury have a molten iron core? That might be not true, but I think it probably is. If you've just sat down and completely made this up from scratch, there are so many sort of truths flying around this like the thing about the probes i know that's true mm. and they've noticed that it's shrinking okay 
<clears throat> you ready for a guess? Yeah, I'm going to say this is true. Final answer? Oh, uh, I, this could be so you've made this up, but I'm going to say yes, this is true. That fact? Yeah. Is completely true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, thankfully, not a whitewash. Right. Wow, it's shrinking. That's uh, interesting. Again, I don't know what over a period of time you yeah. lost four kilometres. It seems like quite a lot to lose. Yeah, four kilometres, that is quite a lot. Off a 4,000 kilometre uh, circumference. Yeah, I've, I've since found this circumference. It's 4,879 kilometres. And it's just sort of being pulled in onto itself. Is, is that Yes, the again, I can't. I'm really bad at describing the process. Please go to the NASA website. <laughs> Maybe we should live stream one of these and use props. <laughs> but I've got a final bonus fact for you, Paul. Okay. And after, again, you'll relate to this because after Earth, Mercury is the second densest planet. <laughs> so you being the densest human, you can relate. <laughs> That's, that's that's not even a joke. It's just I'm really trying here. I'm, you got that right. Every every fact I'm trying to put something in. I thought when you said that it's the second densest planet, I thought you were going to say that you're the second densest person in this room, <laughs> which would have been a better joke. And on that note, we'll move on to your next fact. My next fact. Right. Okay. Um, I'm, science is not one of our strengths, but we went with it. So I'm going to do the same. I'm going with sport, <laughs> which is a subject dear to both our hearts. You've had a couple of good sport facts, though. Yeah, I have. We had the, the um, uh, first Olympics. The Greek swimming team was a good one. Yes. We'll climb that, was Yeah. It? Actually, I'm going back to the early Olympics for this fact. Um, so, yes, um, I'm going to tell you about the fact that clay pigeon shooting replaced real pigeon shooting <laughs> at the Olympics. Okay, so we're not going back to the Athens Games, which were 1896, I think. Mm. Uh, these are the 1900 Games, which were held in... Was it London? Oh, you're close. It's Paris. Uh, London was 1908. Ah. So you were close, yeah. Um, there were nine shooting events at the Paris Olympics that were varied by the distance that the target was at. But alongside these, you know how they have like sort of demonstration events? Um, like if they're thinking about bringing in a new sport at the next Olympics or if they oh, want to sort of say, yeah. you know, while you're here in Paris, here's some other sports that go on in Paris. Uh, alongside that was um, three live pigeon shooting events that were kind of held under the sort of Olympic banner, mm -hmm. but they weren't official Olympic events. So there was no was it not just someone culling pigeons in Paris who <laughs> happened to be near the Olympic Stadium? Yeah, maybe it was. I don't think this has anything to do with the Olympics, Paul. This is people charging to shoot well, pigeons. Yes. Well, the way that it worked for each of these uh, events was that six live pigeons would be released at the same time in front of each competitor. So each shooter would go up to their mark or whatever it was. 90 feet away, these pigeons would be released. And they'd shoot as many as possible, but they were eliminated if they missed two or more of the birds. Mm. So it was kind of a last man standing kind of competition by the sounds of it. I don't know how many people took part, but there were apparently it's recorded that there were um, almost 400 pigeons killed. Jeez. So it seems to have been quite a big, uh, quite a big event. Um, a Belgian man called uh, Leon de Lendon. Well, you, you tried the accent towards the end there. <laughs> well, yeah, because my handwriting's so bad, that might not actually be his name. 
But yeah, he was the the winner. But what eventually happened was that the four final shooters were kind of on an even par, basically. Mm. So they decided to split the pot between them because there was a prize pot at the mm. end of this. You, oh, there was okay. no there was no medals because it wasn't official Olympics, but uh, there was a prize pot. So they split uh, twenty thousand francs between them. Kind of very popular. Um, yeah, but understandably, there was an outcry. Um, And sort of early animal rights protests and things led to things being changed. So at the 1904 Olympics, which we're in... Berlin? St. <laughs> <Saint> Louis <laughs> in America. Um, yeah, at the 1904 Olympics, I don't know whether this was uh, as a result of what had happened in Paris, but there were no shooting events at all in 1904. But at the 1908 ones in London, shooting was brought back in, but the targets were these clay pigeons. They were fake pigeons that were sort of so fired. So is this how clay pigeon shooting was invented? No. Or was this, this a thing? Yeah, this was before? already a thing. Um, but the point was that no live animal was now ever going to be killed again under the sort of Olympic banner. So there was actually an event at the 1908 Games, uh, which was a deer shooting competition, but it was just pictures of deer <laughs> at varying distances and you had to shoot, you had to shoot them. Um, so, yeah, this is the only time in Olympic history that an animal has been intentionally killed. This... I'm sure a couple of birds have maybe gone in the flames at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly stupid birds. <laughs> oh, look at that giant flame! But uh, yeah, it's the only record of of an animal being intentionally killed as part of an Olympic event. Okay, so you say there were six pigeons per shooter. Yes, so um, the shooter would stand up, the pigeons would be released. What did they release them all at the same time? Yes, I think so. Because it's interesting. Because then, if you do clay pigeon shooting, that seems a bit harsh to release six clay pigeons at once, and then. Well, I don't think you can unless you've got six clear pigeon machines. <laughs> well, maybe the they did release the pigeons one at a time. I, I don't know that. I don't know. I just know that there was... Okay, maybe I'm... Was, in, yeah, there was I'm six in, of them. I'm interrogating... Yeah, I'm, I'm presuming that they would just sort of open the basket and they'd all fly off. I'm interrogating the wrong route here. Yeah, but Your maybe... knowledge of how many pigeons were released at once. <laughs> I know there was six. How quickly could you reload the gun? <laughs> so, it seems very early for animal rights adopters. Mm. When did that start to kick off? That, actually, that's a good question. I don't know. I know that there was a sort of undercurrent of people starting to think more like vegetarianism was a was a big thing in kind of late 19th century really? England yeah George Bernard Shaw who we we've talked we've about before who I thought was George Eliot yes George <laughs> Eliot less so on our vegetarianism <laughs> but um George Bernard Shaw was an early advocate of vegetarianism I think he might have written an essay or two about it uh so yeah there was already a sort of undercurrent of being kinder to animals and to, to think about animal welfare certainly so 19 uh 1900 so were there any animal rights groups that were protesting i don't know i know that there was a sort of outcry certainly that there was um... you see you're just you're too generic here paul just an outcry (laughs) just people were pouring onto the streets i know those poor vermin (laughs) (laughs) no i i just know that it was a very unpopular move and it wasn't viewed particularly positively Mm. especially with it being kind of part of the new olympic movement okay first instinct is to Mm -hmm. say this sounds true Mm -hmm. but Maybe my stronger instinct says you've just made this up because... I want to ride on the success of my Greek Navy (laughs) swimming competition. (laughs) That's what makes me think the first Olympics fact was true, which makes me think, oh, that's a... That's a real gold mine I can use there. I think I'll go back to that Mm -hmm. and I'll just come up with some crap. (laughs) (laughs) About shooting pigeons. About shooting pigeons. (laughs) So whereabouts, how far away from the Olympic Stadium was it? 
Oh, I, d- I don't know. Again, I don't maybe actually... I'm asking very specific yeah. questions as, I, if, I, as if it's going to help. I, I know that the Olympics were held in Paris. I'm guessing this was the outskirts of Paris. I can't imagine it being held sort of under the Eiffel Tower. And pigeons died. <laughs> pigeons were, <laughs> they, pigeons they were killed. Have it. More, than, more than 300 pigeons were killed. But it was in Paris, certainly. Okay, I'm going to just take a guess on this one. Okay. I'm going to trust my bigger gut okay. and say this is BS. Okay. Final answer? Yes. That entire fact? Yes. Is true. Oh. <laughs> yeah, real pigeon shooting predates clay pigeon shooting at the Olympics. Yeah. So when did clay pigeon shooting come in there? Uh, it was the London one, 1908. So um. eight years later. And it's kind of been hit or miss ever since. No pun intended. Whoa. But yeah, it hasn't been at every Olympics since. But uh, yeah, it was brought in there. It's in- incidentally, that's something I've always wanted to try is clay pigeon shooting. I'm, I can imagine it being really hard. Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun, though. I don't know. It does nothing for me. I have no upper body strength, so I imagine the re- <laughs> recoil would knock us to the ground. A, a, a good enough sport for you would just be releasing the clear pigeon. <laughs> I can press the button on the clear pigeon releasing machine. My job would be to build the clear pigeon. <laughs> well, we've really found our niches here, yeah, that, Paul. That's where our sport knowledge ends. <laughs> <laughs> so this podcast goes down the pan. You'll know where to find us. <laughs> With our own clear pigeon business. <laughs> okay, we're at 2-2 two, two now. 2 all, yeah. You, I've pulled it back. You beat me with blandness I'm, I'm, again. Yeah, I'm feeling more, more confident now. So, for my final facts... Uh, you may remember a, a few weeks ago we went back in time to. Did we? Co- <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't remember that. <laughs> we went. Do I remember that Doctor Who esque adventure we went on? <laughs> Is that when you started driving that DeLorean for the week? <laughs> <laughs> but a few weeks ago we went back in time to colonial Brazil for one of my facts. Oh yes, the the guy with the lion. Yes, yeah, we had a pet lion. We're now going back. To colonial Brazil because it's a real gold mine of uh, fun, interesting information. Okay, said nobody ever. <laughs> what? It's a really interesting time. I'm not having this. You know, mocking. I quite like colonial South American history. I Thank you very it, was, much. it was too good a too good a line to miss. <laughs> you did this on my coal fact. You just mocked everything about coal. You just got no sense of where no, people have come from and where we're going. You just. I apologise. Listen to your classical music. You just shake. Shakespeare, and anyway, I'm all riled up now. Right. See, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> so, we're going back to the city of Manaus. Um, right. You've probably heard of Manaus. It has an opera house. Well, and you're a poet and you didn't know it. Manaus has an opera. I am four oh, for four now, I think. You are ruining this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember that from the E-level geography. Oh, God. Um, yeah, they, they built an opera house in the middle of the Amazon rainforest in Manaus. Anyway. Well, interesting fact about Manaus these days. About 50% of everyone who lives on the Amazon River lives in Manaus. Oh, really? It's because it's a very inhospitable place for mass populations yes. to live in. But it was founded in 1669 by the Portuguese. Oh. And it's kind of nestled on the north side of the Amazon. Yes. Became a central hub. It's now the capital of uh, Amazonas State right. in Brazil, modern day Brazil. But we're going to... this. The fact today is Manaus was the launching point for the first expedition to find the source of the Amazon. Right. Okay. And the fact is how spectacularly wrong it went. Okay. I like exploration stories. Oh, you like this? We've got the youngest brother of four. Right. Mr. Gaspar Sumeres. 
Right. Who was... His family were kind of minor landowners in Manaus. Right. To be honest, I think his dad just wanted to get rid of him because he, he's, he's, he's got four sons he doesn't know what to do with. <laughs> we can't <laughs> you afford you. Just get out. <laughs> just walk off into the rainforest and don't come back. Right. So he was kind of like a gadabout and he thought nothing much else to do. So he thought, oh, you know what? Let's get an expedition together to find the source of the Amazon. I've got a bit of money, the family mm-hmm. has. I've got a bit of influence in Manaus. I'm going to be a hero. Okay. So he approached the governor of Manaus then, who mm-hmm. part funded the expedition, but he said, we've not got a lot of money, so you're going to have to use most of your family's money as well. Right. Well, not most of his family's money, but most of the trip would be funded. Funded by his family. With his own family's money. Right, okay. So he got a group together. This this sounds like the colonial times were so interesting. You just got together in the pub and decided to do something. Yes. And like you wouldn't prepare. You'd just say, uh, let's just get some friends. Mm-hmm. So he got a few of his best friends to come along. Uh, obviously hired some local guides, mm-hmm. which it turned out those guides didn't know anything about upstream right. Amazon, which okay. is the first mistake he made. So he set out in May of 1773. Right. So basically, his plan was literally just follow the Amazon until I get to the end. Now, you see, that's what my plan would be. That's, that's <laughs> how I would presume so you'd, you'd find think, the end of a river. You'd think you can't mess this up, right? Yeah. You'd literally just keep in sight of the river. Yes. But things are more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. He headed west out of Manaus following the river. Mm-hmm. But there's a point a few hundred kilometres west of Manaus where the Amazon splits off into the river Piorini, which goes north west mm-hmm. whereas the amazon itself goes southwest right now, so this is like a tributary yes so right. him being on the north side he obviously followed the northwest route right it was in thick fog well mist right. that you get in the amazon so he had no idea the amazon went off southwest <laughs> while he continued on this tributary right not questioning why the amazon was getting smaller yes and narrower as he went along but he thought he was he was on a winner that then eventually took him to what is now known as Lake Piorini. Right. Obviously, it didn't have the name Piorini then because yes. he was just exploring But it. he just found a big lake. Found a big lake. Mm-hmm. And he thought this giant lake, this has to be the source of the Amazon. Immediately said, left 20 of his men there, found a city which he called Sao Cristóvão, Portuguese for Saint Christopher. Right. The patron saint of travellers. I, I didn't know that. And he thought... What a per- it only took me a few weeks to get here. <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> Easiest expedition ever. <laughs> exactly. So he thought he was on to a real winner. Right. So he got back to Manaus, uh, whereupon he met some actual uh, native guides who knew that river Piorini and said, mm-hmm. that's not the Amazon. So very disheartened, Gaspar mm-hmm. decided just to not bother going back to get the 20 men he left. Wow. He said, they'll probably make their way home at some point. And they were actually never seen again. <laughs> so, nobody knows what happened to the 20 men. Wow. Gaspar left at Lake Piorini to build a city. And that city never became a city? No, obviously because they thought Gaspar would come back with supplies and people to help build the city for him. Right. Start getting the infrastructure going to build right. this great... This was going to be his heroic monument to how great of an explorer he was. Oh, wow. From Going from useless layabout son to hero adventurer, founder of Sao Cristóvão. Wow, okay. And then right back... The lazy gadabout. Exactly. He was just, he got back, he was like, ah, oh, because he didn't want the effort of building another expedition to go back and get and find them, the 20 right. men. Wow. Savage. Yeah. Okay. I like this story. And it sounds very, very, very true. 
Yeah, I like how that would just be my immediate reaction as well. Like, if we want to see where this river ends, we just keep walking along the river <laughs> and then just presume you've got it right. This is, yeah. So I love, like, colonial history and just before modern technology where people would just, you know what, I think I'm going to do X today. Yeah. I'm just going to keep walking until I find something. Yeah. <laughs> Did you not think that the Amazon is immense? This thin little tributary that comes from a lake can't mm. possibly power the entire Amazon. Did you not work that out? But did you? Would you, Probably put, not. Put yourselves in the shoes of a Portuguese explorer. Yeah, that's without true. Without knowledge not. of what feeds what... He didn't even... He didn't know how far the Amazon extended. Was he born in colonial Brazil? Yes, or, he was born in Manaus. Right, right. Okay. His, his parents, were they born in Manaus? Or were, or were uh, they, I don't know. I just know that like, they owned land right, in Manaus. Right, okay. So he might not. They might not be the sort of most streetwise, no colonial Brazilians, mm. right? Okay, yeah, this does sound very plausible. So it, the, his margin of error was pretty big. Mm. Yeah. Okay, and this. So he goes wandering off with his people, mm. finds this lake, leaves these people behind, mm. comes back, finds out he's wrong, never goes back, never bothers again, and nothing happened with. Those people and nobody the knows city. what happened. Okay, this... We it's assumed they try to make their own way back, right? But whether they ever made it or not, we exactly yeah. nobody knows. Okay, they, it was never. They may have made it back to Manaus mm-hmm. actually. No, but it wasn't reported that they had. So this was seventeen seventy three, right? Okay, and the whole thing happened in seventeen seventy three. How how long did it take him to find this? Lake did it was it like a sort of six month expedition or is this sort of three years later? Uh, it doesn't say actually. When I said a few weeks, I just kind of threw that in there right because okay. I, uh, I didn't actually write down how long it took him to get right. there okay and it's well yeah. it, they were, it's a few hundred kilometers away so I don't know how long it takes to travel through the Amazon rainforest <laughs> on foot <laughs> let's go and find out <laughs> okay <laughs> next week on the <laughs> next week's edition comes live from Manaus <laughs> comes um, live from Sao the ruins of Sao Cristobal <laughs> on Lake Piorini okay yeah, um, this sounds very plausible and I can't see, apart from the fact that you like this period of history and so... That you openly mocked <laughs> five minutes ago. Um, apart from that, and so, and so you might want to make up a story about it, apart from that, I can't really see any reason to doubt this mm. because I know that the colonialists were, we'll try anything, we'll mm. go anywhere and if you've got money to do it, then you might as well just do it. Mm. Um what was the dude's name? Gaspar Sumaris. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to go with my gut. I'm going to say yes. I think this is true. Final answer? Yeah. I made all of that up. Oh! <laughs> Again! Again with the colonial Brazil. <laughs> oh, it was such a good story. Oh, thank you very much. I did. I just went on a map and saw that this river kind of splits off. <sighs> And just kind of went from there, really. Oh, it, it just—it was like just dripping in peppered, truth, peppered with details. Ah, oh, patron saint of travellers. Yeah, yeah. Heroic oh. explorers of the 1700s. You proper suckered me in there. That's yeah. that's annoying. The only truth there was Manaus was founded in 1669. Oh. And the, like the whole thing's made up. It's not based on anyone else. No, just. Oh, <laughs> I feel like such a doofus. <laughs> Oh, so, how's that different to your normal days? Though? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just scream that every morning when I wake up. <laughs> right. Okay. Last fact. 
I, I need to secure a draw here. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to play one of my strengths again. I'm going back to literature. Mm-hmm. And the author who dedicated a book to his pipe. This has rings of that train station guy <laughs> from a few weeks ago. But do go on. Okay. Do go on, um, Paul. Well, I say the author, but it's actually quite a famous author. It's Jerome K. Jerome, mm. um, who wrote Three Men in a Boat. Uh, do you know what the case stood for? Uh, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Uh, no, it stood for Klapka. Klapka? Yeah, his father's middle name was Clap. So, <laughs> I'm guessing that might be Eastern European. Well, yeah. Polish, so um, his father was called Clap Jerome. Um, but yeah, he he changed his middle name in honor of a Hungarian exile called a Georgi Klapka. Mm. Um, so yeah, he was called Jerome Klapka Jerome, which kind of makes my name look incredibly boring. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the sequel to Three Men and a Boat, you know what it was called? Three Men and a Baby. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the sequel was the screenplay to that fantastic Steve Gutenberg vehicle, Three Men and a Baby. Oh, I'm going to rinse this one already. <laughs> no, the sequel was called Three Men on the Bummel. What? Yeah, that bummel? was my answer as well. Bummel is apparently a German word for a, for a sort of a ponderous journey that sort of just goes on and on and on and that you don't really have a destination in mind. Mm. So if you're on the bummel, then you just kind of wander around. I'd never heard of this before, but I like that word. Mm. But I just thought the title Three Men on the Bummel sounds, <laughs> sounds a little That was unusual. the sequel to Three Men and a Lady. Little lady. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. So uh, Jerome K. Jerome, he was born in uh, Walsall um, in 1859. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an actor as well as a writer. I didn't know that. And mm-hmm. also a school teacher and things. And... He started off writing and in 1886 collected together a set of essays that he called Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow, mm-hmm. um, which is basically my life <laughs> and my life work, uh, to be honest. Yeah, so this is three years before uh, Three Men in a Boat. Do you know what Three Men in a Boat was inspired by? I think I've run out of Three Men and a Little Lady <laughs> jokes to make here. Three Men and a Baby. It was inspired by his honeymoon. Whoa, okay. Yeah, you've no. got to. No, this is true. This part is completely true. You've got to give more context. What, yeah, what sort um, of honeymoon was his this? His honeymoon was a boating trip down the Thames. With three men and not his wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was inspired. Him and his wife um, had their Took honeymoon. Took three men on a boat on a honeymoon. <laughs> Him and his wife had a boating holiday down With the Thames. With three men. <laughs> on their own, I believe. And this inspired, um, yeah, three men on a boat, which I, I didn't know. I. I yeah, anyway. Uh, so actually, so, before you go, was three men in a boat, did that actually, was that actually a thing? Did he do that? Is that like a... Oh, I th- no, I think it was fictitious. Ah, okay. Um, I think it was sort of written... I've never actually read it, but I'm, I think it's sort of written as if it's true. Um, yeah, so this is three years before um, he wrote kind of his most famous book. But this collection of essays kind of established his reputation as a writer and as, and as a humorist and as a wit and a, and a good journalist and all the rest of it. But the book, uh, the dedication is really, really long. So I've only got kind of a few choice lines out of this. But he starts off saying that the book is dedicated to his uh, very dear and well-beloved friend. And then it goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a friend who is hated by all the female members of my household. You could have dedicated to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he didn't he dedicated it uh, to this person and it goes on and on and on uh, to a friend who is regarded with suspicion by my dog again it could be <laughs> but no it wasn't you um, it's a friend who never tells me of my faults so it's obviously not you 
uh, never wants to borrow money. Oh, now he's talking. Oh, crap. <laughs> never, never wants to borrow money. Okay, right. You never want to lend money. Um, uh, yeah, and never talks about himself. So it's definitely not me. You, I think you've just put these sentences together. <laughs> just to you've, rinse you. You've based this on jokes. Go um, on. Yeah, so this dedication goes on and on and on about th- how good this friend is. And then the bottom line of the dedication says that uh, the book is dedicated to my oldest and strongest pipe because he was a pipe smoker. I'm guessing it means a, a smoker's pipe, not the pipe under his sink uh, or behind <laughs> the, the toilet. Pipe. Yes. Um, but yeah, that was it. And um, would you like to know some of the t- uh, chapter headings from this book? Will these involve you insulting me again? No, I don't think okay, so. Okay, go on. Let's hear uh, some of them. These, the... <laughs> Um, sound like um, future chapters in your own autobiography. Okay. One of them is on furnished apartments. One of them is on being sly. Uh, <sighs> on babies is another one. <laughs> and on cats and dogs. So he just wrote on various <laughs> subjects. But yes, this book actually turned out to be to be very very popular. But it was kind of eclipsed by how successful Three Men in the Boat turned out to be in 1889, which was three years later. So, uh, yes, he dedicated his sort of first major successful book. Uh, It wasn't his first book altogether. I don't know what his first book was altogether, but his first sort of big success was dedicated to his pipe. You see, you can't just throw that pipe in when the main fact there's like a 20-page dialogue (laughs) about his mate that he was dedicated to, and then, oh, and we pipe. No, no, the, the dedication, the friend... Is the pipe? That's the joke. Oh. There is no friend. You think he's talking about a wow. really? I'm, I'm. Yeah. Now it's my turn to look dense. <laughs> Remind me never to dedicate <laughs> one of my books to you. Um, yeah. So th- th- you think he's talking about this amazing person that he knows, but the joke is that he's actually just dedicating it to his favorite pipe. Right. You've done this before. Dedicated the book to a pipe. <laughs> With your Dr. Zeus story oh, that you wrote, yes. you went to a lot of effort to mm-hmm. write a Dr. Zeus-style story that convinces, mm-hmm. which worked. Have you just looked at a pipe <laughs> and thought of these sentences to go with it? Ooh, they sound really believable, though. But so did your Dr. Zeus quotes. Yes. Ooh, what was the book? Uh, a collection of essays called Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow. So this was his first commercial success. Yeah, his first major success as a writer. He was a sort of journalist and essayist and sort of wrote various articles and, and things. And Three Men in a Board came after. Three years later, yeah. Three years later. And then the sequel to Three Men in a Board, which was Three Men on the Bummel, <laughs> uh, that came after that. I haven't got a date written down for that. It must, must have been oh, quite a Is this a lie? Every part of me says that you've made this up again. This is another <laughs> Dr. Zeus. Oh, we, would you have gone to town this much to write those sentences about a pipe? I'm going to say yes. Yes, you would have. Okay, final answer? Yeah, I'm just have to go for it. I can't interrogate anymore. I'm going to say this is BS. That entire fact mm-hmm. was true. No! <laughs> yeah, he dedicated his first major successful book to his own pipe. <sighs> <laughs> Pulled it back at the end, yet oh. again. I think we've drawn more of these than, than anyone's have. actually won. <laughs> I think we're completely level pegging all the way. So, yeah. yeah, but no, that was completely true. But, you know, it's not about the points, Paul. It's about the journey along the way and the, the facts we learn. How philosophical of you. Exactly. I th- yeah, I think all of mine were true today. And I think on that philosophical note, I'm going to award myself 10 bonus points, <laughs> as well as another 10 bonus points for the joke at the beginning. 
The Sound of the Polis. Oh, God, that seems decades ago now. <laughs> it feels like decades ago. <laughs> so, what have we learned today, Paul? Well, all of mine were true. We know that there was a, um, a composer who left his skull to the RSC because mm-hmm. uh, he wanted to play Yorick. Um, that clear pigeon shooting replaced real pigeon shooting mm. at the Paris Olympics. Yeah, and we also know that uh, you've never read any Jerome K. Jerome. <laughs> Oh, oh, many books. <laughs> yes. Have you ever read a book? Have you read one of my books? I'm sure I have. That's a no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally have. So I scrabble around looking for one. <laughs> looking, looking for the yellow pages. <laughs> they're all, they're all on my Kindle. Yes, that's it. I'll show you next time. Bye. <laughs>